What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got, I think, our official first powerlifting coach on All The Smoke podcast, um, someone that I followed for quite some time. Uh, really heard about him first from the clinical athlete with Quinn Hennick. Um, and John Flagg, like I, I've taken uh, one of the courses that you provided on the clinical athlete um, platform, and I really got a lot out of it. And it was really good. So I appreciate you putting that information out. Um, and I really appreciate you still being on social media, you know, putting out a lot of great content um, with, you know, performance and, you know, training around, you know, injury and stuff like that. So we're going to get to a lot of topics like that. But for our individuals that have no idea who you are, sir, could you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Yeah, uh, my name is John Flagg. I'm a certified athletic trainer. I'm a powerlifting coach, uh, and I own and operate a business called Rebuild Stronger, which is an online coaching service for really all strength athletes. We focus in powerlifting, but we have weightlifters, we have CrossFitters, we have strongman competitors. Uh, and like I, I would say, my biggest mission in life, uh, as you know, I watched the sport grow and watched people get into it is I watched a lot of, of high potential athletes and, and people who really enjoyed the sport leave it, blaming it for injuries or, or whatever it is that they you know weren't able to continue on with. And I just, I don't believe that. You know, I think there's a, a hardcore mentality behind powerlifting and there's a lot of things that people talk about, but the sport to me is a lifetime sport. It's something you can do into your 60s and 70s and 80s and just one of those things you can constantly enjoy yes the standard exists you may have to do push pulls once you get past a certain age because squatting to depth may be a little bit difficult uh but really outside of that like you should be able to do this for a long long time to keep you healthy keep you active keep you having fun and instead i see people leave it early for what really just comes down to bad decisions but no, we'll yeah, get into that more into the in the end of the talk here. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's a huge point because um, no matter how long, and I used to be one of those individuals when I, in high school and even my early days of uh, being a college athlete, it was like, yeah, I can't, I'm not going to deadlift. I will never deadlift because I don't want to blow my spine out um, because that was always what I was told and always what I was taught. Uh, now here I am and I'm sumoing and I'm conventional deadlifting 500 plus pounds. Um, but I think as you said, right, it's not going all in or, you know, listening to your body. And I think that's something that you tried to preach a lot. Um, if you want to have a long career in here, like sometimes you have to listen, auto-regulate and don't be afraid to use modifications and things of that nature to kind of allow you to have a long career in a sport. And I think that's really tough for a lot of people to grasp. Um, but, you know, you've been in the sport for a long time. You've now built a business off of that. Could you kind of elaborate some of the, you know, the quote unquote failures or the lessons within your career that has taught you a lot? Or if you can kind of talk to John, you know, 10 years ago and say, hey, man, this is what I wish I would have known then that, you know, now. How many episodes do you guys have that have the little E for explicit next to it, by the way? Oh, a, it's a lot. all the smoke, John. Let it okay, go. Good. Let it go. I, I literally think every fucking episode has an <laughs> E next to it, except for one. He said it first. All right. <laughs> So young me, 10 years ago, me is actually saying the same shit I tell my athletes now, which is you've got to get rid of your next meet mentality. That's the number one thing that I see people fall into. It's the next meet. It's like their next meet is going to be the fucking meet, right? 
No, no, no. It's five meets from now, 10 meets from now, five years from now. Strength is built over a long term. And I know social media, you see these people, you've never heard their name before, and all of a sudden they're deadlifting eight or 900 pounds. The thing is, I've seen a ton of them come and go, and I'll see even more of them come and go between now and when I'm 50. It happens. Some people do get strong short in a short period of time, and we can talk about how that happens. But in a lot of cases, it's going to take you years to get to that level of strength. So you have to train smart. You have to train hard frequently, but you have to keep your mind on that longer term goal. Just to circle back, I find it really interesting. You kept saying sport, but people never treat powerlifting like a, like an actual sport. Like when you were playing football or you were playing soccer or you were playing basketball or any other sport, Wrestling is my is my go-to, right? You didn't just live wrestle all the time. Like you drilled. You had two-minute round robins. You had positional stuff. You did particular move. You learned how to do a cradle. You learned how to do a half Nelson. You learned how to run a particular play in football or how to do set pieces in soccer. You modified practice so that you could last the entire two hours, yet people in powerlifting are like, if it's not a competition squat, I'm not doing it because it doesn't transfer. Get the fuck out of here. What are you talking about? Why do we look at this sport as if it's completely different from any other sport just because it's three different movements? You can so, break them into so many different pieces and increase the longevity of your career that way. So, so like you're saying, <clears throat> the next meet likely will not be your best. Actually, quite frankly, if you stick with the sport, it should be never be your best. However, if in five, 10 years, if you're positioning it like that, how are you sort of setting your athletes up to, to get in that mindset of you need to spend way more time training and preparing than you do competing for this type of sport? So there's a balance here. I, I don't believe most life has much balance. I think there's still value in competition. As long as you look at competition, just like training is a learning experience. You need to learn how to prep for a meet. You need to learn what kind of lifter you are in a meet, what kind of quirks you have, how you perform on meet day, the things that you need to do to be successful on meet day. That actually takes competition. But to think that on your third meet ever, you're going to come in and like set the world on fire. And then we've all seen it on Instagram. Sorry to disappoint everybody. It just wasn't my day today. Right. Like that's the first sentence. Yeah, that happens. I had an athlete because of, of COVID. There's been a lot of outdoor meets. 103 degrees outside. Nine hours long. What do you think he felt like when he got to deadlift? Could he control that? Fuck No, he can't control that. If he had his sight sets on this was going to be the meat, the meat, like my lifetime meat. That's disappointing. It sets up expectations that can't, you can only control your controllables. So set your expectations based off those things. With that said, there are certain circumstances where you're like, okay, that we can plan for this to be this meat, the meat, because there's so many things that are well controlled. What level does that actually happen though? Prime time at nationals, the Arnold 
And even even in those circumstances, not everything is is a well-oiled machine. But a lot of the times you go to those bigger meets, a lot of the moving factors, like the all the other complicators, are limited. It's not as bad. But you go to a local meet, you think it's going to be the thing when it's outdoors in the summer, in in the sun. You're at you're you're biting off a lot. So then I, I guess, you know, my, I guess next question is, you know, for either the beginner or somebody that has, you know, have, has come to you with experience under their belt, what are you trying to communicate and portray to them? I know you're like, you're saying, Hey, man, we got to take time. We got to take time. Uh, but if you tell me even still now to this day, you know, I, I I've competed and it's still like, yo, I, if I'm still, tra- I still sometimes train like an asshole. And it's like, yo, if I'm not able to kind of hit, I go into the gym. It's like, I got to get this number. Like this number is happening today. If it doesn't, I still leave a little pissed off, but then I kind of zoom out and I'm like, Hey man, I still got some quality work in the way I felt today. But how are you trying to mentally prepare somebody going into a meet, going into the sport, um, no matter what circumstances they are to try to switch that mentality of, Hey, yes, it's about improving daily, but you also kind of, you know, zoom out and reflect on your future in this, this sport. So that's actually a really interesting um, question because you, you mentioned earlier what I would say to my former self and what I would say to my former self is don't really change too terribly much. Cause I like who I am right now as a lifter and I wouldn't have learned that stuff maybe a little bit earlier. I would have learned it, but really I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I hadn't learned those things on my own. And that took failure. It took missing lifts. But it took missing lifts with perspective. Like you said, okay, I missed that number that I had in my head. I got some good work in. Move on. The difference is, is that shit's going to happen. Period. You're going to fail lifts. You're going to fail lifts at meets. You're going to think, Who? quick question for both of you. Have you ever walked in the gym feeling like a million bucks and everything sucked when you actually started lifting? Oh yeah. Plenty of times. It's, and it's funny too, the opposite where you walk in complete shitty and it's like your best day. Lifetime PR. Go ahead. Lately. That's been me. Like I've been walking in like dreading the fucking gym because I can't figure out what's going on. And then I have a really good workout and I'm like, what the hell just happened? About three weeks ago, I came in, I I have a, a basement gym and I came in with zero expectations. I felt like crap. Warm up sucked. Lifetime squat PR. Nice. Period. You just keep going. You chip away at it, right? But the thing is, you have two options as an athlete. You either learn from the circumstance or you don't learn from the circumstance. If I can get my lifters to look at every opportunity as a learning opportunity, then I'm doing my job as a coach. And that's all we can do. You fail a lift, learn from it. Understand it. Figure out how to cope with it better. If you fail a lift and you get pissed off and you, you chase that number for the next five sessions in a row, you're an asshole. You're not learning. Learn from it. Like take that and say, these are the circumstances that led to that. Okay, cool. Didn't sleep well. I, so, I mean, I'm terrible at eating. I'll go long, long stretches through the day and not eat just because I, I keep myself so busy. I've learned at this point, like, I'm going to pay for that. It's just, I am, I'm a bigger guy. If I don't eat, I pay for that immediately in my next training session. So I either own it and say, okay, you didn't do that the way you were supposed to. 
or I can get pissed off. Getting pissed off doesn't do anything. It doesn't help me. No, I so, think that's really, really hits your head on the, 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 the nail on the head because that's something that I've always taught either the coaches or the kids that I've taught for basketball. It's like you want to get as specific as possible. No reps off, no matter if it's the bar, no matter if it's a layup, a free throw. I don't give a damn what it is, but hone in on if I miss this, why did I miss this? Adjust from that. And like you said, learn from each rep, each session, um, and then kind of have all this built up experience. And now you understand what kind of ticks, what makes you go um, and take that whole experience and then run with it, either be it the competition or the next training session, whatever it may be. So you can optimally perform your best. Um, so I know, I, I think I cut you off there a little bit. So go ahead if, if, if I did, but if I didn't, I think one thing that I really want to, you know, pick your brain about is, you know, what form of like auto-regulation, because we were just talking about, right? Sometimes you walk in and you feel like complete crap. And it seems like you are having, you know, expectations early on when you walk into your training session. But for yourself, for your athletes, how are you auto-regulating on the fly? Or how are you educating the individuals of, okay, hey, if you feel really good, go ahead and push this. Or if you don't feel, feel good, maybe dial it down this way. So I use RPE and uh, percentages as a, a general guideline. And the reason I do that is because RPE is skill dependent. And I think one of the hardest things for people to do when it comes to the use of rate of perceived exertion is separating emotion from performance. And like, that's that again, kind of circling back to what I was talking about before. Like I used to let that happen. Feel like crap today. RPE all of a sudden is like two ticks up when things are still moving just fine. I'm just in my head. Now you just don't care. Okay, cool. Yeah. Shitty day. Still, still six. Keep going, keep going, keep going. So in that particular instance, I do like to use RPE and give some sort of like either suggested weight. Like if I have an athlete that's been doing, doing top sets for the last few weeks, then I can give like a suggested, like suggested weight range for them to be close to based off the RPE of the last few weeks and just looking at performance trends. And then we cap RPE to, to keep it there. Do people blow RPE? Yeah. Do they undershoot RPE? Yeah. It's not perfect. We're not perfect beings. It's not going to happen. But as long as we make smart choices there, and that's, that's the hardest thing to get people to do is make smart choices. Then, you know, that's how I ought to regulate my athletes, especially when I think the beauty of RPE, especially in that eight to nine range, is to allow athletes to take shots when things are feeling good. Because we look at stimulus. The hardest part about percentages is it does kind of create a moving target based off the health of the system. On that day where you feel great, and trust me, I respect absolute load 100%. But on that day, you feel great. If you can take a shot and it's still within that RPE 8 or 9, we got appropriate stimulus on that day to – to create adaptation. If you're constantly like, okay, well, it's 80% or 85% or 90%, and all of a sudden that's moving at RPE six. Did we do enough load? Did we get enough work in to actually force the adaptation? And then what happens on those days where it's 80%, 85%, and we feel like crap, and it's supposed to feel like a six and it feels like a nine, are now we overreaching? Just keep a cat, have suggestions in there teach your athletes to be smart with their decisions, typically more conservative than anything else. And then watch it happen. 
So for auto regulating, if you are taking account these these external factors that will impact your training, if someone is experiencing a lot of stress lately, they are going through a breakup, they just lost their job, and now they're all these things are building up. Are is this a time where you're taking those? Uh, external factors and uh, possibly reducing the intensity, maybe instead of going for eight or nine RPE, we're going to go six or seven or seven or eight. It depends on the athlete. I feel like a lot of these questions at this point, we're going to have a lot of it depends with me qualifying a lot of stuff. How well do they cope? I have athletes that, that cope really, really well. And that stuff doesn't impact performance outside of like sleep and nutrition. Like those external factors are just, they're external factors. I mean, to be, to be completely honest, man, I got to show you the video. It scared me to death. I'm about to unrack and my two-year-old walks down the steps, which are right next to my squat rack. And it was on a cambered bar or something stupid. And I had to walk it out, walk it back in, rack it, have her go back up the steps and walk it back out. Like that impacted my performance greatly. And I still got the rep. But I also had a whole bunch of other external stress factors at the time. I still perform pretty well under those circumstances. More experienced lifters tend to lift better under those circumstances. Yeah. And I think you nailed it straight on the point. It, it is a lot of it depends. But the main reason I was asking is we keep mentioning these meats are always going to have these factors that you can't control. Like, okay, it's 103 um, temperature, the AC inside the building is not working as it should. So it's hotter, whatever the case is, uh, when you're training and people are having these external factors, how much are you an advocate of sometimes just being like, even if it is a client that is, they should probably take a little bit off, but how are you about advocating? Okay. We're just, you're going to have to push yourself today because in meets, everything's not always going to be perfect. So on meat day, I think it's different on because you're, you're in a pressure cooker environment to begin with. It's hard for me to sit here and be like, I advocate to push as just a general rule of thumb, because sometimes you can't, you just can't. I've athletes that got news that their dad got cancer. Like it, it we're not, no. We're going to stabilize training. We're going to make it something that's enjoyable. We're going to make it something that you can stick with and be successful with and not have it be an additional stressor to make adjustments there to move the needle. Because here's the thing. If I have that athlete go into the gym and make reps and complete workouts, even if they're shorter workouts, I'm either going to stabilize strength or do just enough work to have it build in the background. It might not manifest into performance right now because of the stressors in their life, but down the road it will. Or I can say, push it. And they're not in a position to actually even want to do that. And instead they just don't go to the gym. Or they show up and they do a couple sets. They get to their top set. It feels like shit. They put the bar in and they quit. That's not being a good leader or not. And it's not being a good coach. In that particular instance, I have to back off and and let those things happen and bob and weave with my athlete. That That's why we're guides and we're not old school football coaches telling them to suck it up or bear crawl. 
right? We're, we don't do that. However, if we're two weeks out, three weeks out, and this is the Arnold or, or Nationals, then we're going to have to have a conversation. And these are those difficult conversations. Okay, look, we need to have a talk about what the next couple of weeks are going to look like and what we have to do. Here's the one thing as a coach I don't think a lot of people talk about. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be a coach, if you want to be their guide, you are going to have to talk about messy life circumstances. I'm not saying you got to be a therapist, but I am saying you have to have conversations with your athlete to help them manage the rest of their life. What, what things, what are the minimum viable dose of things you can do outside of the gym, outside of life to help cope with these situations so we can put you in a position to be successful three weeks from now? It's a conversation that has to be had. Do you have to have a conversation with your partner? Do you have to have a conversation with your training partner? Do you have to have a conversation with your job? Because that all is going to impact not just the physiological response of my athletes, but their actual life and enjoyment. Am I saying you should quit your job to go to nationals? Hell no. You ain't getting paid to go to nationals. Get the fuck out of here. But if you're going through some stuff, changing your shift around, finding some time to take care of you are all factors that we may have to explore outside of just pulling training back because there are so many other factors that go into performance. Yeah, I think like we were talking about a little bit before uh, we hit the record button is setting boundaries. And that's something that I think everyone struggles with because I think here in America, and we've had some conversations with people from around the world, they're like, you guys are just insane, right? And John Weekly, uh, the VBT guy, he said, yeah, man, you guys COVID, if uh, you guys wanted to take a day off or a week off, it's like, you guys got to file bankruptcy and you guys, you guys might as well just dig your grave. But I think yes, that, that, that go-go mentality that life is a rat race and it's more is better. And if we can't do any more, then we're a failure. Um, and I'm not sure that's a combination of just like social media, instant gratification, just this now day and age or whatever it may be. Uh, but really setting yourself boundaries and allowing yourself, like you said, me time to de-stress, enjoy life because, right, we're not getting paid to do any of this. As you said, a lot of it's just a, a fun hobby that, you know, it helps us cope with general life. And it obviously it helps with, you know, health and longevity and stuff. Uh, but it can't be like that all or nothing mentality. You got to take your wins where you can get them. Um, you know, I think the, the next question is to you for you is particularly how, um, I guess, you know, form cueing and stuff like that, because now if we get into that, that stress environment, um, sometimes, right, we're not going to be able to have, you know, the high intensity or, hey, my knees really bothering me and stuff like that. Now, how are you trying to either educate or what are your go to exercises for working around like low back pain, knee pain, stuff like that, shoulder pain, like your most common injuries that we uh, have all experienced with, you know, our powerlifting career. Sure. I'm a, can I get into that in just a second? Yeah, for sure. I yeah, do want to circle back to what you talked about with time and just, just touch on something for every single person li listening, understand that you are going to be remembered more for what you said no to than what you said yes to. And I mean that in a positive way, you have to be fucking ruthless with your time. You have to be ruthless with your time. Anything that is not taking and putting you in the direction of the life that you want isn't worth it. It's not worth it. To me, 
and I understand this. We hear people all the time. Oh, don't let your sport identify you. Don't let that be a defining moment of you. Powerlifting is my life, literally is my life. It is the one of the three things that I constantly have time booked for in my week. The other ones, my kids, my work, and my lifting. And my work and my lifting are, are pretty much intertwined at this point. And my kids are downstairs lifting with me at this point now, too. i got a two-year-old. She's got her own little barbell. She freaking loves it. Everything else goes through the screening process of, is this taking me in the direction I want it to? If it doesn't, it's an easy no. We have to be more ruthless with our time. Because if you say yes to everything and you have these grand goals, you want to go to the Arnold or you want to go to, you know, IPL worlds or whatever, then saying yes to fucking everybody isn't going to get you there just makes life messier. If you really want those things, be ruthless with your time because other people around the world do think we're crazy. They <laughs> yeah, do, and they I, think I, we're nuts. I, yo, I think this is, that's like striking all the smoke literally right there. Like if, if anyone could take anything away from that, I would hope that it would be that because it's not even in regards to training. It's not even in regards to whatever you may think it is. It's literally anything. If, if, if that's what you want and that's where you see yourself going, that's where your time needs to be. And even to touch back on those like tough conversations, like yesterday I had a conversation with a client. I was like, and it, you, it, you said it sometimes, and I, I can't really be in issues because right. I'm only 25, 26. Um, and I'm like, I, I don't know what, what it feels like to have a kid. But understand, if you go half-ass on your goal right now, right, you said you, your kids are watching, right? Everyone around you that, you know, you care and love about, they're watching you. And your daughter, right, she's about to go into high school. She's about to get into sports a little bit more seriously. So she's watching you. So you can't make up, like, I guess, quote, unquote, excuses. You got to find a will. And when there's a will, there's a way to get your work done um, and just set an example. And like you said, have that daughter um, be your prime example of, right. I got to get this done because she's watching and I'm going to set an example and allow her to understand that no matter what is going to happen, no matter what is thrown at me, I'm going to get this thing done. Yep. And honestly, like my kids have watched me fail lifting more than anything else. And I think it's a big lesson to them because they don't, they don't see failure as like this bad thing. You just get up and do it again or, or find a way to win that day. And it, now let me also get your opinion because you know I've heard a lot of powerlifting coaches is like you never want to miss a rep, right? You never want to miss a rep because now when you go into a meet, you're not expected to miss a rep, and you don't even know what that feels like. And I'm always kind of counterintuitive. I rather if you're going to quote unquote miss a rep, I'd almost rather it be in you know uh, in a training session so you understand what it feels like. You can cope with it as we kind of say. But what's your opinion on that? That I guess that phrase of trying not to miss a rep because now you know mentally you don't know how it feels. You're not you're not ex expecting that you're now you're not going into that intensity barrier where that stimulus fatigue talk has to be happening. Yeah. I don't think Wayne Gretzky would, would believe with that philosophy in any way, shape or form. Like I, I, I find it really interesting. This, this is where I compare other sports and the narratives in powerlifting compared to other sports. Like if you don't take the shot, you missed anyway. We have so many athletes. It's just really simple, right? You have athletes that when it actually comes to meet day, they get a ton of anxiety about heavy singles. Because they've never taken heavy singles because they're afraid to miss. Well, if you're afraid to miss, why haven't you pushed hard enough to actually miss before? Oh, it's because if you miss, the injury risk is so much higher. 
are really, are you sure? You're positive about that. 100%. If you have safeties in place, you have spotters in place, you have all the things that are necessary to actually do the sport properly in place. Like if, if there's a possibility you miss a kick in soccer, if you miss a, a goal, like a, a PK in soccer, do you just not take it? No, you have to learn from these things. These are all skill dependent things. They're all mindset related things. You're going to miss. Sometime in your life, you're going to miss. You're going to get hurt. The narrative of like, oh, if, if, if you got hurt under your coach's watch, he's a terrible coach. How do you predict that? We already know enough about injury that that's completely unpredictable. It's not going to happen. If you miss a lift in training, it's a bad decision. What's a good decision? Never missing? Never never pushing hard enough? Now, is have I seen dumb misses? Have I seen somebody take a weight that was already like an eight and a half and add 100 pounds to it? Yeah, that's just dumb. Like, don't do that. Just don't. But – the best example is bench press. Bench press has like a glass ceiling to it that it catches up to you really quickly. And I think a lot of people, they're like, oh, just add 10 pounds. And then they're just stuck. Like nothing happens. But was that a bad decision? It's hard for me to say it was a bad decision. They got stuck halfway up. A spotter took it from them. Okay, cool. Five pounds next time. You know better. You can make a more informed decision next time on the next jump to make. And then as a coach on meet day, instead of me just taking a bunch of numbers that we think we can hit based off, you know, a few other things, I can actually also have a conversation with my athlete and say, what are you comfortable with now? I'll coach that five kilo jump. I'm used to that in training. This is what, you know, I'm capable of doing. We're good. Cool. Now I have more information and can make better decisions because we've been through that process. The narrative of like, you should never miss, injuries never happen, like all these, they're, they're all bullshit. They're all just guru bullshit that's not real life. If you're in this for long enough, all of the above is going to happen. It's how you manage it after the fact. Yeah, man, I'm glad you're saying that because that's something I try to portray uh, to a lot of my athletes and sometimes even myself. Like sometimes you need that failure. You can be like, oh okay like that's what that shit really feels like um and even you know I, I think just walkouts are a huge part so you can actually feel how much that weight actually feels on your back or you know in your hands um and that neurological system kind of just like clicks and you start to feel a little bit more comfortable and i think again confidence is is something that i try to stain on my a lot of athletes is like yes like we're going to you know build that and let it be a stain that you can't wipe off. So again, you have that swagger when you walk into a meet or you have that swagger when, hey, it's time to touch an RPE nine or really try to hit for a, a new PR. Um, so you, because that mentality of uh, approaching that bar, no matter if it's a really lightweight or it's a really heavyweight, it is going to control how that bar really feels on you. So um, I'm glad you're, you're saying a lot of this because I hear a lot of nonsense. I don't know if it, it, it is what it is. Maybe I'm in a new state and they're a little bit softer, but I, I sometimes I'm just like, hold up. What did you just say? Like, you can't, you don't want to push your athletes like that. Like sometimes you, you need to be like that. And then I always bring it around. It's like you said, we have to kind of compare it to a different sport in basketball. I want my practices to be harder than the game. So when we go into a game, it's like, yo, this shit's easy. We can just play how we would normally play. And 
the other team has to respond or react, respond to how we do things, because this is how we do things no matter what the scenario is. We're going balls to the wall. We're in your face. We're screaming at you. We're hitting you. And then you're just like, whoa, like this is this is different. Um, so I think like you said, you have to, I don't mean to say make training harder, but have it at that intensity and in a smart way that no matter what happens, you know, and you've been through that. 100%. And then, you know, as a coach, I think that the thing that people might hear this and they'll be like, oh, so you're just okay with like hurting people. No, like not at all. I just understand that the perfect rep could be executed and you still get a hamstring strain. That the perfect rep can be executed. And okay, here's a great example. I have a guy, he started coaching. He, he's one of my athletes. Between COVID, you work for the Postal Service, not delivering a whole lot of packages, right? Started back into training. Everything's going well. Starts putting more steps in because he starts delivering mail again. How do you think that impacted his knees? Going up and down steps because he lives in the city all over the place. Did we try to manage volume? Yeah, we pulled it back a ton, but he got patella tendinopathy in both knees. Other lifestyle factors go into that as well so you can't sit here and tell me oh you're okay no people are going to get an injury they're gonna at some point it's gonna happen how do you how do you cope with that how do you manage it don't be a dumbass as a coach either and just be like all right max singles every single day that's not what i'm advocating for either we have to be smart but i am i understand that those things are going to happen even under the best circumstances as long as we make good choices. Now that actually comes to the question you asked previously on how I use coaching or cueing and how I actually try to get people to move better. So in my personal opinion, I like to use movement variation to teach because I think very similar to like other, I always use soccer as the example here. If you want an athlete to be better with their first touch in soccer, being able to see open passes in soccer, being able to see the field, you put them in small field play. You make the field smaller. You create a constraint around the actual sport to make them respond faster, be better with the ball. Cause if they, they have a bad touch after a pass, there's a defender closer already. The ball is going to be taken away. You got to think faster, move better, do things in a more efficient way. Same thing. If I have an athlete that, crashes the hole in a squat, then some sort of pin squat, a box squat, a pause squat is going to be way more beneficial than me saying, okay, now I need you to keep as much tension as possible into the hole. Load yourself like a spring, spread the floor as you get to the bottom. Like these are all things that are effective and external cueing, in my opinion, is still superior to internal cueing external being some sort of frame of reference as opposed to like a body part, like push your knees out. I'm not a big fan of, but movement variation for me is top tier followed by external cueing to give a little bit of context of what I'm looking for followed by, if there's really something specific, then some sort of internal cue. But yeah, movement variation is, is where I start first. No, I, I totally agree. Like if you suck at something, like we have to address those weaknesses and I guess put you in that situation, as you said, and so you can lift that gap. And I, I forgot who or where I heard it from, but 
it was more of the reference of uh, the deadlift. If we're on a block pole and you are stronger in that block pole, whether you are off the ground, like that's that difference that we need to make up for. And we got to put you in that position to get you stronger in that position. Um, so I think, like you said, I think the rule or the principle of specificity is key there. Um, and I, I think sometimes, and I fall, uh, fault to it sometimes is that I, I tend to over cue and sometimes I need to shut myself up and let, like you, we've been kind of talking about right now is let that, that experience kind of unwind with the athlete and them understand and let that kind of click. So we can kind of, you know, in, in, ingest it and then kind of portray what we would see. But I think the more important thing is the athlete kind of comes to the conclusion itself. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I would agree completely. We talk about self-organization quite a bit, uh, especially in my course, how the brain actually responds and learns. And a story, I, the, the way I like to, to kind of wrap it up for people is when's the last time you actually thought about brushing your teeth, like how you actually brush your teeth. Most people wake up in the morning. They, I mean, hopefully you brush your teeth first thing in the morning, but they go in, get toothbrush wet, put toothpaste on, and they just do the thing, rinse it, spit, rinse, done. My two-year-old daughter literally has to think about each aspect of what she's doing. Like, okay, how do I do this again? Okay, cool. Bottom teeth first. And she'll sit there and like talk to herself while she brushes her teeth. When you're learning something, your brain is trying to create predictions. That's what it does. It predicts. It wants to use as little energy as possible to get the task done. So from a a lens of powerlifting, how many times have we seen somebody that gets that uh, that posterior weight shift, that, that good morning squat? that everybody sees, right? And they work at it, they work at it, they work at it. They go to test their max, good morning squat again. They do all this volume work to build up weaknesses. And then they come back to that heavy stuff again and it's the same thing. They get to that threshold, you know, 100 kilos and it's right back to where it was. The problem is, is the brain when put in that position has already created a prediction of how it's gonna execute the movement to survive. And at that point, we have to use movement variation at high, high enough intensities to make the brain reorganize what it's saying. And then the athlete will self-organize. You'll see a better movement pattern, pattern later on. I know I'm getting like super wordy and sciencey here, but then on the back end, they'll go to do that maximal squat and they'll be in a better position. But that starts with movement selection. So something I'm curious, uh, which I never had thought about it or thought to ask this question to myself to look into it. Is there a specific reason why you choose that pattern? For example, do you know any literature that supports that external is better than internal cueing or uh, vice versa? Uh, There's actually quite a bit. Um, I can forge you guys a lot of the studies, Um, but an external cue, especially in dynamic movement, it gives you that external frame of reference. So when you're doing a very complex movement pattern, like a squat, focusing on your, your, just your knees position is, I mean, think about that. Like, are you actually going to be able to do too terribly much? However, if you tell somebody to spread the floor or you tell somebody uh, a more externally balanced type of, of cue, it takes that singular focus away and it has them move in a more global way. 
So like uh, they do a lot of it with jumping tasks where they'll say, jump out as far as you can. It's an external cue. They'll get a longer broad jump than try to put all the force through your feet. Uh, okay. It's, Chris, so it's like the same thing rather than, you know, uh, for the deadlift, some people always say, you know, t- you know, depress your shoulder blades, but we have to almost say, hey, bend the bar or, you know, I think like uh, what my favorite cue is, hey, protect your armpits because if you're ticklish, I'm going to come fucking tickle you and nobody likes to be tickled. That's one of my favorite ones. That to make your arms as long as you can. Mm-hmm. And you'll see people like. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of insane that whatever, again, whatever clicks, like it it literally just changes the whole positioning or the whole like motion of the movement. Um, but like you, like you even said, John, it's that trial and error. Sometimes I, I'm saying something or something you're saying to the athlete and they're like, I don't know what the hell you're saying. Like you kind of have to, I think that again goes to building a relationship or rapport with your athlete. So you understand you can make it relatable to them. So it clicks and they can kind of transfer it over for performance enhancement. hundred percent. And think about, I mean, you guys are way too young to remember this one, but Michael Jordan's playground from back in the day where they actually like went over how he shot free throws and shot three pointers and how many shots it took for him to just get that stroke. It takes reps too. Like you can't tell an athlete one day do this cue. First off the next day, that cue may not work again. Like that's the craziest part. It hits with some people at some times and doesn't hit at other times, but just because they got one good rep in that training session, because the cue you use doesn't mean that it's going to like, completely transfer to performance over the long term they still have to do reps they still have to do a ton of reps to get that long-term solidification and stabilization of that new movement pattern so that's why i go with movement variability first because i can do that in a training session have a whole bunch of learning happen from it and do it over and over and over and over again and we hear people they're like well what about specificity Like, John, do you have people do box squats leading up to a meet? Yeah, I do, because it's still a squat. I'm not having them do Bulgarian split squats as in place or a leg press in in place of their squat. I'll do a two-depth box squat as a secondary squat day later in the week. Is it as specific? No, but it's still going to move the needle for this athlete to get them going in the direction I want so that they can actually get improvement. Specificity is great, but we can be overly specific as well. Well, I mean, even to counter out that, like a box squat is way more specific, as you said, than a rear foot elevated foot squat or a leg press. So I think that's, I would say that is almost as specific as possible. I mean, maybe not the whole thing, but it's almost close enough. In reality, all the, the only difference in my personal opinion is an external constraint, especially if I have them still hit the standard. Like if they execute everything else the way that I want them to do it in a meet, then the only thing that's there is this external constraint, whether that be squatting to a pin or squatting to a box. You know, yes, I think there's a squat to a box and a West Side style box squat that are different. Mm-hmm. I will say this as well. I, I work with equipped lifters. A West Side style box squat close to competition is not going to be detrimental because you're going to have to figure out how to sit hard into that suit with really heavy shit at some point. But like how, how far away, this is a question I ask so many coaches, how far away does a squat have to be from your squat to no longer be a squat? 
I mean, honestly, if you really want to get technical, I even would consider a, almost a rear foot elevated split squat damn near good enough. Like I'm loading that one single leg and I'm now it's a little bit more demanding, if anything, right? We're not going to be have to have the specific load. But I think once you get into the leg press and lunges in that nature, right, I'm not having actual bar on my back. Then I would say, okay, that variation is not as specific as you can get. Okay, Mike Boyle. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean – it, it all really depends on where the athlete is, what they got going on. Like in that specific example, I could use that real leg elevated split squat. They may not be in competition prep, but it may be a way for me to get them to squat unilaterally because of an injury or something else going on that is going to allow me to still get them training and work towards that standard. Again, this is all, it's fluid stuff. I don't like to have people in a box. They need freedom. Let them move. No, I, I agree with that. Even like you, I would, we have some good literature. We were talking to Eric Helms about it. Like we even have literature. That's out there. my guy. I love Eric. Yes. We have even have good literature out there now that even allowing your athletes to self-select their accessory movements will allow more intensity and effort into those accessories. And that has a carry over to improving body composition and strength. So I think there's a certain point where, where athletes were like, hey, I trust you. Do this. Um, so have you ever done that for your your particular uh, athletes as well? It's like, hey, we got to work on, you know, getting out of the hole. Pick one of these four exercises. Oh, yeah. And, and this is a big time. It depends. Um, mainly because it depends on the, the experience level of the athlete and how long we've been working together. Because a lot of it's going to be data points. So like, let's use me as an example. Okay. I, as an accessory movement, really like dumbbell rollback tricep extensions. For some reason, that accessory movement helps to directly build my bench. When I'm doing that heavy, at least once a week, I continue to see bench progress. And I, I, I don't, like a lot of people will get tricep discomfort from it. I don't. It's just a movement for me. Yeah, so Kevin and I have agreed that I'm going to do that once a week heavy, regardless of what's happening. I have the choice of all my accessories. I have other athletes that have the, the choice for, for their accessories. And I, I find it really interesting because another prominent coach on Instagram the other day said that allowing your athletes to choose their accessory exercises is lazy as a coach. But if I've spent the last year getting to know this person, understanding their trends and i tell them hey look we're going to continue that you know guiding this through the process but you have a really good idea of how you feel on a daily basis on what kind of things move the needle for you on the on xyz i'm going to give you the ability to make choices on these accessories that's not lazy coaching that's empowering your athlete and allowing you guys to take the step in the next phase of the coach athlete relationship where I'm no longer a dictator where I'm no longer the, like the, the, the master of puppets on the programming. They're really part of it. And now it's such a collaborative relationship that you can take it to the next level. You can take it higher and higher and higher. And that's where you see like Matt and Susie Gary working with Ray Williams in the way that they work on a, on a regular basis where you see how they work with, with Bryce Lewis. Like, yeah, Matt and Susie, I've known them for years. They're, they're mentors to me. But you see other coaches that have worked with particular athletes for extended periods of time, 
where that relationship is so solid, it's unbreakable. But you have to be able to take those steps and allow them to be able to do those things. Yeah, choose your accessory exercises. I have a, a lifter down in Texas. Everything outside of her main lifts is a choice. She owns a gym. Part of that just came from the fact that, John, I can't get to the tricep rope because I've got 50 people in here right now. I need another option. Okay, cool, Heather. Let's figure out an alternative there. How about we just do a tricep choice? I'll give you a body part that I want you to work on. You pick your thing. It's worked out amazing. Yeah, and I think what you said, man, that is empowering to the client and it shows you how far you've actually educated that individual. So that's 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 sad and that's, I think, ludicrous that an individual, like I guess a well-known power lifting coach, whoever you said that is, I guess whatever. I, I, I don't know. Again, there's so many, there's so much dichotomous thinking. I think with a lot of exercise science and sports performance, there's just a lot of gray area that we forget to kind of touch up on, but I know we're reaching time. Uh, so I want to ask this last question, you know, where there's a, a good paper out there with, you know, tapering and powerlifting and things of that nature. And I always like to, you know, pick people's brains that have a lot more experience than I have with coaching and, you know, being in the sport. What is, I guess, your go-to tapering protocol. And I know it's going to depend on the athlete and things of that nature. Um, but for my eyes, how I look at tapering is now we're kind of getting as specific as possible. I'm reducing overall work. I'm trying to keep intensity relatively high around 85, maybe 90%. Uh, but I just want to hear what are your, your, I guess, go-to tapering protocols for someone as we've never done a meet before that you have never tapered before to somebody that has a lot of experience and you've tapered them before. Okay. So the most important thing for me, especially like as you get to know somebody is tapering each individual lift based off the length of time it takes them to recover from a heavy lift. I think that's what everybody screws up. Just like you see beginners try to train the bench press the same way you do the deadlift or, or train, train deadlift or vice versa. Well, I'm going to deadlift four days a week. Good luck. You can't, you just can't do that in order of recovery and the length of time it takes to recover from longest to shortest deadlift squat bench press. So from a general framework, I look at what Borishiko used to do as a great starting point for beginners. Our last heavy single on deadlift is probably going to be 17 to 21 days out. 14 10 to 14 days out for squat. And honestly, you could probably take a, your last heavy single on bench a week out. And then I take that and I look at how my lifters trend over time after multiple meets together, after multiple tapers together, not just meets. You also have to take in like mock meets and working up to, to heavy singles during training and how that looks and look at how their recovery is impacted. I had an athlete, Unfortunately, not in the sport anymore because of life circumstances. It took him 28 days to recover from a heavy deadlift on average. So four weeks out from a meet, we're doing our last heavy deadlift. Anything, anything shorter than that is a nightmare. It just felt heavy and it wouldn't move off the floor. I have other athletes that within seven, eight days, they can take a heavier deadlift. They're smaller athletes. They recover faster. We could talk about, you know, actual size of the athlete impacting that. But from a general rule of thumb, my number one thing is 
stratifying the lifts out in their recovery time, as opposed to like, I think that's the only hard, fast rule I really stick to. Because from there, it's going to be like, okay, so for a beginner, for, for a newer lifter, we're probably going to be taking a little bit, like a few more singles in that 80, 85% range to get them used to singles. They're going to recover faster because, yes, is that the maximum amount of weight they can handle? Absolutely. Physiologically, though, probably not. They're probably still – their skill level is, is actually the most dependent thing, not their ability to produce force. Absolute load is going to be higher. Their ability to produce force and technique is going to put them in a position where, like, they're they're right there. And you really have to look at how long it takes those lifts to recover to make sure you're staying within those realms. So 95% plus happens weeks away from the competition for things like deadlift and, and leads up to it. For me, like me personally, five days out from the meet, I can take my last heavy single on bench. 21 days out is deadlift, 15 days out of squat. it's going to be depending on the athlete, but that's the thing people forget. They try to do them all the same. All right, John, we greatly appreciate you coming on, giving us all the smoke with your experience, your knowledge, go ahead, let our listeners know where they can follow you, uh, where they can reach out to you for coaching, anything of your services, if they like what you were putting out here. I am most active on Instagram. So that's John rebuild stronger. Um, I don't really look at Facebook at all anymore uh, for multiple reasons. Um, but that's like, if you want to message me there, then feel free. I'm an open book. I'll talk to anybody. Um, any questions you have hit me up there. Uh, you can also hit, uh, send me an email at rebuildstrongeronline at gmail.com. Last thing, cause I want to say this out loud. We didn't get to the water cutting question. The only question that I have, if you are going to water cut is what fucking record are you going to set to go through that? Hey, so I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan's podcast with uh, Andrew Huberman and he thinks the UFC in the next five to six years, it'll be banished. He's like water cutting. Yeah. He thinks it's going to be banished. And it seems like, I think in California, it's already quote unquote, like you can't do it in any powerlifting sport or weightlifting sport. If I'm, if I'm correct, or it, I think it might be MMA. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I heard, like in the in the West that they're really getting stingy on water cutting because if you think about or this is Joe Rogan's perspective and it kind of opened my mind like you're cheating in a sense right if you have 24 hour weigh-ins you can cut a significant amount of weight and then you got 24 sometimes even 36 hours to really just you know just put on a bunch of weight it might not have such a I guess maybe impact for performance and powerlifting but if you think out of a UFC MMA where somebody's actually trying to kill you I, I think there's a significant difference with that Oh yeah. When you get brought to the ground and that person's all of a sudden 30 pounds heavier, right? That would suck. <laughs> but like from a leverage standpoint, yeah. I mean, I think there's a big, a big difference. If you're in there and you're against people who let's say you're a, a 205, right. And you're most of your the rest of your competitions at 210 and you're actually walking around at 264. <laughs> That's a big difference. That's a big, big difference from a, just a leverages standpoint. And you rehydrate, recomp, you've got 24 hours to do it. It's definitely a performance advantage. But here's my thing, okay? Teach their own, understand it completely. 24-hour weigh-ins is a federation-dependent thing. What record are you setting 
to go through that. Are you going to just beat a couple people in that lower weight class? Or are you trying, like, for me as a coach, it better be worth something. Some sort of qualifier, some sort of, of, of big event, some sort of record that you're setting. Because otherwise, it's a lot to go through. And what people don't understand, you can easily screw it up. It can easily make your performance even worse. And it 100%, 100% impacts your performance in the following weeks. So if you want to get back to training faster, I suggest you not do it. It's not necessary for beginners. It's not, Even most intermediates, it's not necessary. Keep away from it. Hey, I like that. All the smoke, don't do it. Stay safe, eat food, love food, and just train hard, but smart at the same time. Love John, food. we appreciate your time, sir. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back on. Maybe we can do like a, a clinical athlete click where it's all the smoke and, and, and clinical athletes. So we can have all, you know, just a round table of just picking each other's brain for sure. If you do that, you're going to have to book out more, a lot more time. Cause at least I know Jared <laughs> Quinn and I are bad. Uh, we can hey. be on the phone for two or three hours. Shoot, hey, we're all about it. We're trying to spread the spread the word that powerlifting isn't dangerous, man. You just got to do it the right way. That's true. And then bring Eric on so that I can talk shit about Omar's hair again. This is ah. my thing, right? I'm going to get on the Iron Culture by just doing a hair off because I grew my hair out during COVID. Oh, uh oh, look at that. Oh, oh no, we got the Thor <laughs> 2.0 right there. Yep. I'm trying, I'm trying to hair off with Omar and nobody, nobody will listen yet. So dude, Hey, that's, that's a good idea, man. We're going to have to put it, put it uh, in, in, into account. We're going to have to just CC everyone and make it fucking happen. And done. that will be the longest podcast in podcast history. We might have to, we might be Joe Rogan's time. I don't know. He's got like but, a four hour one out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> all right, John, we'll let you go, sir. But again, we appreciate your time. That was all the smoke with Mr. John flag. The one and only rebuild stronger powerlifting coach will let you get to your rest of your day, but we appreciate it. Thank you so much, boss. Thanks, gentlemen. Peace. Take it easy.